You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. Go ahead and turn with us to the book of Matthew. We're jumping back into our series this week that we've titled Live. And the reason and purpose that we've titled it Live is because we believe that we want to live and live life abundantly. And we're not up to some arbitrary way to figure out how to live and how to live abundantly, but instead we actually have the creator himself, God, who stepped forth into creation, delivered the sermon called the Sermon on the Mount that we're working through and told us how we can best live and live life abundantly. And so we actually get the words of our creator as he preaches and delivers the sermon and we are working through it on the Sermon on the Mount. So turn with us to the book of Matthew. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 today, Matthew 5. Specifically, we're going to be in 21 through 26. And we're going to be talking about anger. So if you're here, you're not here by accident. You're here on purpose. So we're thankful you're here. I'm also, I'm honored to preach. I'm honored to be the pastor, one of the pastors of this church. It is an honor to me. And I love our church family. And when you plan a church, I think you have some level of love, but it's a lot of new relationships that people you don't know that well. But then as you grow, you get to know people more and you're known more by people and your love, I feel like, for your church family grows. So much so that next week our men leave for what's called man camp and it's a men's retreat. We have almost 40 men going, which is amazing. And so some of the other pastors in our network have said, hey, do, do you guys, like the pastors want to drive over early and stuff like that and we can get a place to hang out? I'm like, No. <laughs> I'm staying with my men. I'm like, your dudes might not be awesome, but mine are, and you might not want to hang out with your men, but I want to hang out with mine. And so I'm thankful for that, that I like, I don't just love our men, I like our men. I'm excited to spend time with our men, bond with our men and get to know our men. And so I'm thankful for this church, for our brothers and sisters, and to get to lead. So join me in prayer this morning. Father, thank you. Thank you for church family. Thank you for the gift of family. Thank you for the gift of friendships. Thank you for the gift of your word. God, we're not left to figure out how to live this life here on this earth for this short time. You've laid it out for us. The creator himself spoke. You didn't just speak, but you stepped in through the person and work of Jesus. Lord, we read your words today. The words that came from the creator of human life. And if we want to know how we can live, ultimately we need to be reconciled to our creator, which is why you came. But we can also understand that you laid out for us how life on this earth lived underneath your reign and your rule as the king and hero that you are will be lived best. But we also understand every moment of every day that we fall short of measuring up to the standard that you've laid out for us. So remind us this day that we need you. Point this day to Christ, our savior. Help us to point one another Help us to know that it's the, only, the, the, the true healing we need in our marriages, in our life, and everything come from what you've supplied. And your, 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 your work, Lord, is sufficient. Holy Spirit, minister to us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's start with a nice, light icebreaker. Get things started this morning. Raise your hand if you've ever murdered someone. <laughs> it would be kind of awkward if that was true. But Moses murdered someone too, and he wrote a good chunk of the Bible. So almost, or I would say almost no one, one person who I know, and I don't think he's murdered someone, slightly lifted his hand. But for the most part, no one raised their hand. 
And if this question would have been asked amongst the original audience in front of Jesus, a lot of scribes and Pharisees, they also wouldn't have raised their hands just like us here today. The problem is, is they define the law by simply an external action. And so they actually reduce the law. And so what Jesus is doing time and time again, I said this, you're going to miss the Sermon on the Mount. One, read it as a whole. Two, understand this, that Jesus is preaching and speaking to the heart. If you think it's just something to only uh, just purely grasp it with your intellect, you're going to miss it. If you think it's solely about a religious external action, you're going to miss it. He's getting to the heart over and over and over again. What the Pharisees and scribes were doing was trying to reduce it down to a set of laws and principles they could, they could perform. And externally, they could look perfect amongst everyone else. And so they, they would have said, yeah, we've done this. We've done it perfectly. What we'll find out today is that's not the case. Is that according to Jesus' standard, there's not a man and a woman in this room, myself included, who has not been guilty at some point of murder. Maybe today, maybe this week according to Christ's standard, because again, Christ's standard is not him coming in and revamping the law, upping the law. It's actually him interpreting it in the way that it was always meant to be, something for the heart, not just an external action. So let's look here. Matthew 5, 21 through 26. These are the words of Christ given to us by Matthew. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Our main point today is gonna to be anointing through pointing. So if you walk out remembering something, remember this, there's anointing through pointing, okay? And, and our outline is gonna be this, verses 21 and 22, we're gonna look at, let's point to the problem, okay? Verses 21 and 22, we're gonna to point to the problem. Then we're gonna look at this. This will be a sub point to that, that anger points to love, fear, and hurt. It's also in this section, we're going to look at uh, those of you in here that aren't Christians as well, and even talk about where your anger comes from. So anger points to love, fear, and hurt. Then at 23 through 26, we're going to see how Jesus is pointing to the priority, relationships and mission. And then all of this we're going to see comes of this. It points to the anointing we need from someone, specifically Christ the anointing that we need, and we specifically need to point to him. So that's where we're going. Let's jump in verse 21 and, and 22 as we dive in. We're going to look at this. What's the problem first, okay? Let me say this. If you hear the sermon this morning and you think, I'm nailing it, you're probably not hearing it right, okay? And, and, and if you hear the sermon this morning and you think that's probably not relevant to me, you're, you're already off on a great path to become an awesome Pharisee and an awesome scribe, okay? If you start to listen to the sermon this morning even as Ian said, as he's been reading through the Sermon on the Mount, it should feel heavy. It should feel convicting. We should go, man, oh, that's, that's rough. That's not good news. Every bit of the sermon given to us by the sermon giver should drive us right back to our need for the person that's delivering the sermon to us to say, I can't. I need you. Only you have. 
So that's how we need to read this. That's how we need to understand this. And, and this is what Jesus is doing is, is saying this right out of the gate. You have heard that it was said to those of old, 21, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say, look here, he says, but I say, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell fire. So in other words, murder is not just this thing that's a physical act. Murder is something done to the soul. See, Jesus is concerned about our words and what's going on inside of us because what actually happens is when we start to hate someone, when we have anger for someone, what we are doing is actually in that process, we are murdering them, specifically their souls, but in the process, we're also killing our souls. And so it's a double whammy that Jesus is concerned about. When we hate someone, when we have anger towards someone, that anger drives and leads us to murder someone. We have two separate words here for insults and for fool. Insults is when you think someone is just dumb. Their ideas are dumb. Their mind is dumb. So it's pointing to the mind. Like, that's, that's dumb. Their, their, their mind is dumb. The other one is to the heart. If you ever think, that person is gross to me. They're repulsive. They're like beyond saving, just vile. That's anger or hatred towards someone's heart. So when you see people or think about people and you have those thoughts of, man, that is so dumb or they're so dumb, anytime we do that, what we're doing is we're taking someone who's made in the image of God with the mind that God has given them and saying, this is dumb or they're dumb or they're vile and they're gross. When every Christian who is a Christian is only a Christian by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone. And then somehow we look at other people and go, Ooh. And it's there that Jesus starts saying these very thoughts, this heart motive is actually what it is to kill someone. And let's be honest with the room we're in. I know this caricature is not going to fit everyone, so just roll with it, okay? But tell me, if you're in this room, <clears throat> that you don't have thoughts when you see someone drive a jacked up truck with a Confederate flag and Trump sticker with a sticker someone urinating on liberalism and says, save lives and don't get vaccinated. They cut you off, tell me that every thought inside of your mind is holy toward the person right then. Let's go to the other side. Someone's driving a Subaru. Okay? Go, go green. An evolution sticker. It says Bernie Sanders and it says, save lives and wear a mask. They cut you off. Is every thought holy in that moment? The person that pushes capitalism what do you say and what do you think about them? The person that pushes socialism, what do you say and what do you think about them? What do our thoughts and our inward hearts reveal about how we actually view people? You see, is it possible for us to despise and loathe sin without loathing a person? If we're being honest, man, we fall short with this all the time, all the time. And these are the things where it's starting to say, these little things that I would call micro bitterness or micro uh, j j just like anger, they build and they build and they build and they build. And so we can say, well, I'm not like this or I'm not like this. It's like all of these thoughts culminate into something. And, and let's also just be honest with the time and place that we're in right now. People in this room have experienced more anger in the past two years maybe than ever before in their life. Frustration, hurt, why? You were never planning to homeschool you were never planning to live life so reactive. You never knew the amount of fear that you were going to be wrestling with. You never knew all the changes that were coming our way just like this. So, so much stuff that's in here has come to the surface and it's boiling out. And why? 
is it people that's the problem? Because Paul would say that flesh and blood is not where our fight is at. That there's spiritual darkness inside this world, and the spiritual darkness's job is to convince you that you need to hate other people and murder them by hating them. And I think the enemy's doing a pretty good job. I do. And so first, we're going to have to point to the problem. The problem is not something floating around in the ether out there. The problem is not even these systems that need to be torn down and then rebuilt by broken people who have broken hearts and broken lives. The problem is that our hearts are wicked and our hearts are pulled toward hating people and despising people and bitterness. And yes, bitterness. James 3, 14 through 15 says this, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, is what James calls bitterness. Hebrews 12, 15, the author says this, see to it that no one fails to obtain to the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Pre-Jesus, I would struggle to think that I could meet someone who was more angry than me for anything skin color, anything. I hated people. And, and, and I know this sounds crazy to, to, to even say from up here, but I believe that my anger was so deep and so intense that I literally think I've, I could have killed people in my darkest moments. Just the amount of rage and anger and hatred I had within me, I feel like was, was just so dark. It's very obvious to see that. Here's the other side that's just as damaging is my wife sat in a coffee shop the other day and said she listened to some people talking about other Christians from their church family in a way that completely degraded them. But they did it in such pretty language. Talked about how this guy does this and this woman does this and went on and on and on. And so much so that their words that are coming out of their mouth are devaluing humans. But the thing is, is we can make that look so pretty. That's why in our culture, we want to go after the person that, 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 that says profanities, right? I can't believe they said this word. I'd rather sit down with a guy who's rough around the ages, or rough around the uh, edges, and has really bad language than sit around with a bunch of people using really pretty talk, but instead what they're actually doing is destroying other people's lives. Because it's that kind of devaluing of human life, that's where it starts. It starts in the heart. Look, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't start with the Holocaust. It starts there. It doesn't start with slavery. It starts here. It doesn't, it, it, what, what happens is it leads to things like abortion, leads to things like Holocaust, leads to things like slavery, because what we start to do is we start to say that this person or this life has no value to me, and since they don't have any value to me, we might as well just get rid of them. That all starts with the heart, and then it moves outward from there. That, that's why Jesus is like, let's just stop First, and recognize that that first sign of bitterness, that first sign of anger, that first sign of hatred moves and it builds and it grows and it grows into something that looks like this. But already before you even get there, you've already murdered the soul whenever you hate someone or you have anger towards someone. So let's point to the problem. That's the problem. The problem is the heart. But also, let's recognize this, that anger points to love, fear, and hurt, okay? Anger points to love, Fear and hurt. Anger's not the problem, okay? So just take a deep breath, maybe say that. Anger's not the problem. It's what we do with our anger or who we're angry with or what we're angry for. Because anger is not a bad thing. Ang I'll say this. In a fallen world where sin exists and evil exists, you can't have love without anger, okay? 
in a fallen world where there's sin and evil, you can't have love without having anger. Here's what I mean. You can't look at cruelty, sin, and evil and be indifferent toward it, or else you wouldn't be a loving person. If I, as a husband or a father, saw something that was wrong happening to my wife or my children, I would not be very loving if that did not make me angry. In fact, we see Jesus's anger when he's here on this earth. Like, I love the passage in John 2, 15 through 17. Like, lo- love this. And making a whip of cords, this is our creator. He drove them out of the temple with, 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 with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. The problem is not anger. Jesus got angry. In fact, Paul tells us to be angry. He, 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 he commands, he says, be angry, but don't sin. Anger is a pointer. Jesus also said this to the scribes and the Pharisees. He said, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Jesus didn't mince his words. But what he was angry about is it wasn't the self-preservation his anger was about God and God's glory. His anger, his anger was about loving people. His anger was not driven about what he wants and what I can get. His anger was driven by holiness and justice and goodness. And I would say that anger is pointing to the fact that we have been created in the image of God who is just, who is holy and is good. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, here, here's my challenge for you. If you get angry, where does your anger come from? Because if you're, if you're an atheist or a naturalist and say, well, it's because this is right or this is wrong or this is evil or this is unjust, you, you don't have a ground to stand on there. And I'm not saying that you're not moral. I, I'm just saying, where are you going to point to whenever you get angry for injustice in the world? Because as soon as you say this is right or this is wrong, you're appealing to something that is a right or a wrong. You're appealing to a standard. So your, very, uh, your, your anger itself points to the fact that you know you have an acute sense of justice, which means you're created in the image of a holy and good God. That's why you get angry, because you understand justice. You're not just a brain that's just throwing out chemical reactions. If you guys have ever seen the, the thing where they drop Mentos into a Diet Coke and then a volcano eruption happens, that's a chemical reaction. We don't look at that and go right, wrong, true, or false. We just look at that and go chemical reaction. But we, what happens to us whenever we go, that's wrong or that's right, it's not a chemical re- reaction. It's something inside of us that goes, that's right or that's wrong, because I know what justice is. I know what morality is. And so it's a great pointer. And so you can't have love without anger in a fallen world. Yes, pre-fall, pre-sin, before into the world, you didn't need anger. There was nothing to be angry about. The Godhead didn't need anger. There's perfect unity and perfect love until sin entered. What do I mean by this? That anger points to love, fear, and hurt. We see that we need anger in order to be loving, and that it's ultimately not anger that's the problem. It's what we do with it or what we're getting angry about. But let's look at where it's stemming from. If you back an animal into a corner, it's going to respond because of fear. Now, if you back a hurt animal into a corner, now you're really going to get a response out of it because it's hurting and it's fearful. In the same way with us, we will lash out when we feel like we are backed into a corner because of fear and because of hurt. Let's explore this a little bit more. I'm going to give you guys two stories. When, when I started following Jesus, 
I, I went to like a men's, like a mini men's retreat thing or something like that, okay? And I was introduced to the game Mafia. I don't know if any of you guys are familiar with this, but you basically sit around in a room and there's like 12 people and, and you're given different titles, right? You, so you got a sheriff, you got a doctor and stuff like this, and everyone closes their eyes. You can kill people in the night and stuff. Not literally, figuratively. Uh, <laughs> So we were playing this game. I lied the whole game, really good at that, okay? I'm like, this is my world. So I lied, and I was like, if I'm lying, and, and, and I really am, because I was actually the mafia, and I'm like, and I really am the mafia, I'll, I'll walk out, and I'm, anyone who knows me knows I am petrified of heights. I mean, I mean we, we are driving sometimes as a family, and I like, needed to pull over before, because I almost passed out. And I told my wife, I'm like, I need you to take the wheel. She's like, who's gonna take the gas? So heights, I don't do well with them. And so the people there knew that. So I was like, if I'm lying, I'll go look over the balcony. The balcony is really tall and everyone knows I wouldn't do that, right? And so they're like, he's definitely not lying. He's definitely not, he's not mafia. So everyone started to back me up. I'm like, yeah, game, game ended. We won. Turns out I was mafia. These guys are mad. And they're like, you're going out to the balcony. I'm like, I'm not going to the balcony. It was a game. So they start forcing me out to the balcony and, I, and, and I'm, I start getting super fearful. I'm like, if you guys keep coming toward me, I'm telling you guys, you're not gonna like what's gonna happen. And they're like, you can't take a saw. I'm like, no, <laughs> but do you wanna have kids one day? And what about you? And so, I, so, so they keep coming at me and I attack them in all the vulnerable places. And I like throw one and I was like, I was so fearful because I like did not want to go to the balcony, okay? That was me responding out of this fear. It, it, it was this fearful response, okay? It's not important, but I didn't make it to the balcony. <laughs> Here's another one. Ronnie Gogan, who's one of our pastors here, he's at the back of the room. Ronnie and I used to lead together at our previous church, and Ronnie was our junior high youth director. Phenomenal job, building and growing the junior high youth group. So one day before I'm coming up to speak, I think I was speaking that day, I don't even remember, but I do remember this, obviously. Uh, Ronnie tells me, hey, can you come out on stage and do like a charades game with the kids, with the junior high students? I'm like, yeah, that's, that's fine. I'm like... Uh, he's like, sit in the chair, and you're going to be a bull rider and try to have them guess what you're doing. I'm like, okay, easy enough. So I go out, and I sit in the chair, and I'm sitting down, and I am just hammering this chair with this bull ride and stuff like that, and they're just laughing. I'm like, these kids are idiots. Like, I'm clearly a bull. They're not picking up on it. What I didn't know is Ronnie had told them, this is what it's like when Rick sits on the toilet and goes to the bathroom. <laughs> so, in my, so in my mind, I'm like, I was told that it was a game of charades. They were told it had nothing to do with charades. Someone might in a moment like this, I thought it was hilarious, but someone might actually go, dude, you made me look like an idiot. That really hurt. And so it's at times and moments like that where sometimes looking stupid or having something happen actually makes people lash out in anger because you go, hey, the way you said that or what you did or the way that whole thing went down, it actually hurt. And so sometimes... Anger is a great pointer to point, to point toward the things that we're fearful of. I think the pandemic's brought a lot of that out. But also where there's hurt in our lives. And if we're, again, just going to be honest with ourselves, a lot of times when people start to say something to us, we get defensive, right? We're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Where is that coming from? It's coming from this. You said this, but I heard it like this. And it goes against my shame that tells me this, an, an acronym for shame and acrostic for shame is should have already mastered everything. That, 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 I should have, that I should be doing better here, I'm not doing enough here. And so when you tell me that, all, the, all, all it does is makes my unworth feel like I'm not worthy and I'm not doing good enough. And so I get angry. 
Or when you say this, it makes me fearful because I feel like I'm losing control or my anger comes from that. It, it, it comes from this root idol of control and I get angry anytime I feel like I'm losing control. Or anger points to the very things that you idol in love. Go ahead and take something away from someone and when they get angry, you will quickly find out what the thing is that they're worshiping in their lives. Their anger is pointing to that. The things you step on, the things you get near and the things you get bit from by people are typically rooted in anger or their anger is coming from this. You're hiding sin in your life and you're afraid, again, fear that people might find out. Anger is a great pointer. So let's point to the problem. Anger points to love. Anger points to fear and anger, anger points to hurt. Let me ask you this this morning. <clears throat> Where do you think your anger is coming from? And have you even take, taken time to even ask that question? Is it, does your anger come from, I don't like it when things get out of control? I don't like it when things feel unsafe. I don't like it when things feel like this. I don't like it when people say stuff to me because it actually makes me feel like I'm not worthy enough or good enough. And so it's actually more driven by my hurt. Where does your anger come from? And have you taken time to ever explore that? Or, or do you just go, oh, I'm angry and I hate that I'm angry and I hate now that I've lashed out with my anger. We're gonna get to this in a little bit, but our only hope in all of this is Christ who gives us the security we need and the acceptance and the approval that we need. Let's look at 23 through 26 and see how Jesus is pointing to our priority. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Okay, look here. Look at where Jesus' priority is. We go back and read a story in 1 Samuel 15 where God orders Saul, King Saul at the time, to take out the Amalekites, and he doesn't do it. And then he's found offering sacrifices, and, and the question is posed to him, what's more important, offering sacrifices or obeying God? And so if we actually want to walk in obedience, what Jesus is saying here is, don't worry about going and laying down all of your offering and all of your sacrifices and all this external worship. The point of the gospel is that God reconciles us first to himself through Christ and then to one another. And so the very antithesis of the gospel is to be disunified with one another. And so he's like, hey, if, if there is anger or something going on or divide, go and settle that. Look at the wording though, 23. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember, look, that your brother has something against you. It's even more difficult. It's not that you have something against your brother or sister. It's that they have something against you. He's saying, look, it's so important, even for society, but, but specifically here, he's talking to the church. It's so important that we go and be reconciled because how is it going to affect that other person's worship? Sure, you might be fine, but are they okay? And so can you enter in and take ownership and say, hey, I think I've I think my actions have, have led to a lot of bitterness or a lot of hurt or a lot of frustration in your life. And I want to apologize for that because I want you to step foot in worship and not have that with, with inside of your heart. I don't want you to have that very thing that can murder your soul or that brings death to you. In fact, it's not about me in this. It's about the other person and their ability to worship without having something in front of them, which takes a lot of courage to do. 
We need to understand historical context though. Back then they had a synagogue and a place where people could worship. Nowadays we have technology. So we have a lot of opportunities to reach out to a lot of people that maybe there's a lot of fence. But I think it's important to know that could lead to a lot of exhaustion to even think about doing that. What it's talking about here specifically is those that are in the household of faith. Look, if you wrong your brother or sister and there's something going on there, go to them and be reconciled. They didn't have the technology they, that we do today. They didn't have all the opportunities to, to reach out. It was the people that lived in their town their whole lives, that attended the same synagogue their whole lives. So what it's talking about here is go and be reconciled to those people. Go in and say, I don't want anything to hinder your worship, your relationship with God, your relationship with me, and your relationship with other people. I, w- I want to see you invested. Therefore, if I've done something, I want to step into that and own that. Jesus' priority is relationships. The very essence of him coming to earth is to restore relationships with us, with God, and with us, with one another. That's his priority. His other priority is mission. Very practically, he's saying this, that, hey, if you realize that there's something going on between you and your accuser, settle it on the steps of the courthouse. Don't don't even let it go that far. What he's saying is this, don't get caught up in uh, civilian pursuits. Don't get caught up in the, the, the lawsuits and all the stuff that's going on. If you have an opportunity to settle it, maybe the opportunity to settle it is to say sorry. And, and, and maybe you're like, man, it's going to be really hard for me to say sorry and then not have them say sorry back, right? But man, if we look at our life, what Christ does is continues to pursue us, not in light of how much we say sorry, how much we confess, or if we confess all of our sins. Christ pursues us in light of his work and his performance. It's grace after grace after grace after grace. So maybe we can step towards someone and say, hey, I don't want this to go far. In fact, both you and I, we need to be out on the mission field. We need to be making disciples. We need to be preaching the gospel to people. We need to be equipping people. We need to be engaged in this. There's people outside of the walls of our local church that don't have this hope of the anointing that comes through Christ. Let's go out and start pointing. Let's point to them. Let's point them to their greatest hope, to the healer, the one they need. And so let's, let, let's squash all this. Let's put this to rest so that we can get focused on what's important. So Jesus is pointing to the priority, relationships and mission. But all of this is pointing to this, that all of us in this room have fallen short of the glory of God. Raise your hand if according to Jesus' standard that possibly, might possibly, you've murdered someone in your life. All right a little different. I feel safe now. What we have to do and what we have to understand is is a little model we're going to work through, okay? It's called, who is God? What has he done? Who are we? And what do we do, okay? There's our model this morning. Who, what, who, what, okay? Who is God? As we're looking at this and we look around the room and go, according to the standard that Christ has of what murder is, it's actually anger. And let me say this first, your anger is, is, is something that can, in and of itself, be the thing that anchors you desperately in your need for Christ. Because you go, man, I, I don't want to be angry anymore. I want it gone. Maybe quite possibly if that was removed from your life, then you could become puffed up, proud, and arrogant. But it's that very thing and what you do with your anger and the sin in your anger that is the very thing that keeps you buried on your knees saying, man. I'm a man or a woman who needs mercy. But first, who is God? God is slow to anger. God is is steadfast. He's long-suffering. Let's look at a few verses, okay? 
Because what it actually means in Hebrew and, and what it actually means is that God has a long nose, okay? I know that sounds funny, so let's unpack it, but, 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 but God is long of nose is how it would actually read. So in 1 Samuel 17, 28, it says this. Now, Eliab, his eldest brother, this is David's older brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger, which if you look at it there, it actually is nose, was hot, or it says heat, but here it's kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? So the word anger is translated from nose into English as anger, okay? Exodus 4.14 says this, when the anger, again, that would, that's nose in the Hebrew of the Lord was hot or kindled against Moses. And he said, if they're not, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? Let's look at Exodus 34, six, God's description of himself. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, which could actually be translate, translated long of nose and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. What is this meaning? It means that when we get angry, our faces turn hot, right? And then we explode with this impulsive anger. When it's talking about God having a long nose, what it actually is saying that he is slow to anger, that, that, that his face is slow to get hot, that it's slow to start glowing red like we can so quickly, that his nose is long. This is why Proverbs 14.29 says this, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. It's almost like the Jewish author James, who's the half-brother of Jesus, was on to something when he said, be slow to speak and quick to listen. So who is God? Long-suffering, patient, slow to anger, thought out. He's not just instantly hot and just radically mad about something. He's thought out, slow, purposeful, loving, gracious, and patient. That's who God is. That's not who we are. If we can be honest with who we are, we are short-fused. We are very short-nosed, one could say. Our faces grow hot quick. We get angry fast. Typically, why do we get angry? We get angry because things aren't going our way. We get angry when our kids don't perform the way we think they should perform. We get angry when we're not getting what we want. We get angry when we feel hurt. We get angry when we feel scared. Our anger is typically driven out of a self-defense mechanism of self-preservation for ourselves and has little to do with God's glory and little to do with other people. Our anger oftentimes in and of itself shows us how desperately we need God to do something about it. And he did. What God did is God sent forth his son to perfectly display in all of his life what it is to be slow to anger. What it is that every time that emotion comes forth from justice to display that in a way that was for God's glory, but for humanity's good, to actually love others more than loving himself. Jesus never got angry out of this self-preservation, selfish desire to just look good or not have someone uh, disrupt his, his image or anything like that. Jesus's anger was driven because he cared about God's glory and he cared about humanity. It was perfect. His every emotional response in his life was perfect. He had perfect self-control, but he did something about it. He said, I know you haven't, and I know you can't, therefore I will. And so when Jesus went to the cross, what he was doing in that moment, we can even use the courtroom language that was happening here. A lot of people like to use the analogy that we stepped in the courtroom with Jesus and God is the judge. We can go with that, but the reality is, is we're not even in the courtroom. We're dead outside, according to scripture. It's Jesus that goes in before the judge and says, here's my life a perfect self-control. 
Here's my life of only getting angry for the right things and the right purpose and the right motives. And I'm going to give that to you, Father. That is my sacrifice I'm laying before you on the cross today, but I want you to do one thing. Give them this and give me theirs. It's what we call the great exchange. And so on the cross, Jesus takes our anger, our impulsiveness, our self-preservation driven by our fear and hurt desires for ourselves and says, let me take that upon myself. All of your anger, all of your murder, all of your hatred, all of your bitterness, all of your contempt, make that mine and then make my life of utter, complete love and perfection theirs. That's what we call justification. So that life of Christ is actually given to us as though it literally belongs to us and it's ours. But that's not where it stops. As a man, and I won't get into this really short, who was once arrested in jail and then were released, it was fine to be released. The problem is I had no one to be released to. Jesus isn't just forgiving our sins and forgiving our debt. He's actually applying his life of perfect perfection to us, but he's reconciling us to God. What I needed was a father to hold me. What Christ does is says, yeah, yeah, here's a clean slate. Here's my perfection, but here's your reconciliation with the father of infinite love, unshakable love. Listen, the thing that you need that's going to actually heal your soul and heal anger is to know how much you are loved by Christ himself. You never have to worry, I'm going to guess, if the sun is going to go down in the evening or rise in the morning. You have more stability and security to know that Christ's love will never waver for you. And the very healing your soul needs in the midst of your anger is in the midst of your most hostile moment. You need to know this. God is the one person who can and who does hate the sin while loving the sinner. God has that ability to hate this while perfectly loving this. And you can come to him in your darkest, angriest moments and be held and be loved. And here's what he also does. What, what, what we have in Christ is we have this anointing through pointing. What we do is we point to his life. We point to his death. We point to his work. We point to his resurrection. We point to the everything that he has done. And we point to him and say, that's mine. And I'm his. That's the anointing we have. And, and, and the love of the father, that belongs to me. We don't have to point to our life and our sin. And if here, please hear me in this. If you think you're going to overcome anger with self-control, you're going to become more angry. Because now the only thing you're consumed with is trying to fix your own sin by getting more angry and and hating your sin more. What you need to do if you want to overcome your sin more of anger is first know and understand this, that in the midst of your angriest moments, as a child of God, his love is not shaken for you. That in that moment, because of your fear of being out of control, you have perfect control in who you are in Christ's security. In that moment of feeling like you might be rejected, you have the perfect acceptance and a love of Christ's voice saying, you're mine to you. And that's what's going to heal you. It's to not try to overcome anger, to become fixated on it, but instead to point to Christ and become fixated on him. In your darkest moments of anger, start pointing and praising and saying, yes, I'm this, but Christ was this. He's my anointing and he's cleansed me as oil does, not externally, but on the inside. We have anointing through pointing, but we don't point to ourselves. We point to Christ. What do we do from here then? What do we do? If we understand who God is, what he's done in Christ, who we are, healed, cleansed, loved infinitely, what do we do? We pray to the spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, that instead of getting rid of our anger, he'll transform into something that looks like Jesus's. 
See, your anger is not the problem. What you need to do is ask the spirit to transform it to now, instead of being about protecting you, it's about loving God and protecting others. So Holy Spirit, transform my anger. Man, I'm good at getting angry about politics. Man, I'm good about getting angry about this. Jesus, help me to get angry about what matters, the glory of God and the love of others. Next, this one's very simplistic, but so important. Take a look at your biological components too. Because maybe you're angry because you're not getting enough sleep. Maybe you're angry because your hormones are out of whack. We live in a fallen world. And so don't overlook the very thing that might just be attributed to some diet, to some sleep, to some exercise or something like that, okay? That one's free. There you go. (laughs) Last, our anointing comes through pointing. We don't point to ourselves. We don't point to how awesome we are. I'll be honest with you. No no one wants to be around the person that's always talking about how, how they're nailing it. You're a miserable person. I'm just being honest. I'll just say this. The anointing that we have comes through simply this. We can own our failures and and mistakes because we get to point to the one who says, I love you in spite of them all. We point to the one who says, I've anointed, I've loved you, I'm never leaving you, I'm never forsaking you, I'm with you to the end. And what we do is we leave these doors, or even before we leave, is we start pointing others to that too. Christians have a burden of responsibility to say, hey, I need to be pointing to Christ, but I also need to be pointing you. Right now, you're looking inward. Right now, you're looking here. Right now, you're looking there. You need to be looking to Christ. Let me point you back to Jesus. Let's point the world that doesn't know Christ to Christ and say, you're looking for something. You're trying to control your anger. You're trying these 10 steps. You're trying self-improvement. What you actually need is to know your anointing comes through pointing only to Christ. He's the one you need. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for doing what we could not do, living a life of perfection. Lord, I I can't even imagine (laughs) what it's like to just be angry about the glory of God and the love of others, but I want to be more like that, and I want that for us. So transform our anger into something that looks more like yours, and let us trust you that you will do that because you are good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.